Hey, good morning, Brookstone. Welcome to church this Sunday morning. I'm so grateful that you're there. Why don't you take your Bibles on both campuses and let's turn together to the book of Revelation. And today we're going to go to Revelation chapter 13 and then Revelation chapter 6. So we'll be reading in both of those passages. Go to chapter 13, put a Bible marker there, and then go ahead and make your way over to Revelation chapter number 6. While you're finding your place in those passages, let me begin my time with you by reminding you of what we studied together last Sunday morning as we were talking about the return of the Lord. And we learned together that there are two parts, some would say two phases to the singular return of Jesus. So the Bible promises that Jesus is coming again. Uh, you'll remember from chapter number one, I believe verse number seven, behold, he comes with the clouds. Well, he is coming but there are two parts to his return. And last week we learned that the first phase of our Lord's return is an event called the rapture of the church. And this is the event where uh, he will call home all the saints through the ages. That is, those who have died in the Lord, their bodies will be raised. And then those of us who are alive and remaining at the time of his coming will be called up to be with them in the clouds. Second Thessalonians uh, or I'm sorry, 1 Thessalonians chapter number uh, 4 tells us about this. So the rapture is first. And then following that will be the second phase of his return, which will be what we call the revelation or the second coming of Jesus. And this is recorded in Revelation 19, where Jesus comes not just to the clouds to call us home, but when Jesus comes as King of kings and Lord of lords uh, and comes back to the earth, literally to rule and reign on this earth. So one return of Jesus, but two parts, the rapture and then the revelation. The rapture in Revelation chapter 4, the return or the revelation of Jesus in chapter number 19. Now, those two phases of his return are separated by a period of time which the Bible calls the tribulation period. And the tribulation begins in Revelation chapter 6 and goes all the way through chapter number 18. And the scripture says that the tribulation period will come to a conclusion. It will end in the very location where I'm standing today, right in this valley that you see laid out behind me. It is the valley of Armageddon. So let me welcome you into week number three of our nine-week study through the book of Revelation. And in these nine weeks, we are considering together the eight key prophetic events that are recorded in the book of Revelation. And by understanding those eight key events, we're seeking to understand the book as a whole. I'm glad you're able to join us today by video. We're here in the Holy Land, as you know, with a group of pilgrims and we're traveling around learning the Bible, studying the scriptures in the very places where the things that we read about in the Bible actually occurred or where, as prophecy promises us, they will occur one day in the future. Today, we're talking about this period of time known as the tribulation and specifically uh, uh, who will arise and be giving leadership to the world during these days of tribulation. Now, the Bible speaks in many, many times about this 
period of time known as the tribulation. In fact, you have your Bibles open to Revelation chapter 6. Turn back just a page or two to Revelation chapter number 3. And you'll see in verse number 10 where the scripture speaks of this tribulation period. Revelation chapter 3 verse 10 says, Because you have kept the word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the Here's what uh, Jesus calls it in this verse, the hour of temptation or the hour of tribulation or the hour of struggle or anguish that is to come upon the whole world and will try them that dwell upon the earth. So Jesus, in his own words, describes this period as a global, all-encompassing time of trial, anguish, tribulation, which will in fact effect and try, as he says, every person upon the earth. In Matthew chapter 24, in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus uh, spoke of this period of time in a similar fashion when he said, for then shall be a time of great tribulation, such as the world has never seen before. And in fact, in Jeremiah chapter 7 and verse number 30, Jeremiah talks about this time and he says that it will be a time of great trouble for Israel specifically. In fact, he calls it the time of Jacob's trouble. So the tribulation period is spoken of repeatedly in Scripture. And we also know that the tribulation period, uh, as I mentioned, has a very clear beginning point and a very distinct conclusion. And that the, the amount of time that the tribulation will take is seven years. It will begin and seven years later, it will conclude. Now, we know that for a number of reasons, but one of the reasons we know it is because of the prophecies that we read of in Daniel. Uh, Again, you have your finger in Revelation chapter 6, but I want to ask you to turn with me uh, to the Old Testament book of Daniel. Uh, So do that quickly, if you will. Go to Daniel chapter number 9, and if you're not sure where Daniel is, you'll find it uh, not far after the book of Psalms. They are sort of in the back half of your Old Testament, right after the book of Ezekiel. All right, Daniel chapter number nine. And he told us uh, about some plans that God had and the length of time that God would take to accomplish these plans of redemption in the earth. So Daniel chapter nine, beginning in verse number 24. Let me just read it to you. Daniel 9, 24. The prophet says, Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city. This is upon the Jewish people and upon the city of Jerusalem. So the angel says to Daniel, there there will be a period of time of 70. The King James translates it 70 weeks. The word weeks means sevens. So 70 sevens are determined upon the Jewish people and upon the city of Jerusalem, in which he says that God will accomplish some wonderful things. He will, verse 24 says, finish the transgression. He will make an end of sins. He will make reconciliation for iniquity. He will bring in everlasting righteousness. He will seal up the vision and the prophecy, and he will anoint the most holy. Or the Messiah, Christ, will come as King of kings and Lord of lords. So 490 years 70 times 7, 490 years, each 7 being a week of years. Now, let me just stop and say, if this seems a little confusing to you, uh, 77s, why would it uh, be worded that way? 
Well, in the Western world, we tend to measure time in tens. Uh, we speak of time in terms of a decade or a century or a millennium. Uh, we, we like to think in tens, but not so in the Jewish world. In the Jewish world, time is measured in sevens. And this is based upon the model of creation and the system of Sabbath or Shabbat. As you know, every seventh day is the Sabbath day of rest. Every seventh month uh, on the Jewish calendar is a sabbatical month, a month of rest and prayer and feasting. Every seventh year is the Shabbat year where the land is to be allowed to rest. And even every 49th year, which would be every seventh Sabbath year, uh, they then go into the year of Jubilee. So in the Jewish way of thinking, time is marked in sevens. And this is the reason when the angel spoke to Daniel in chapter number nine, he didn't say this many decades. He didn't say five centuries but he said 490 years, which would easily be understood in the Jewish world as 77s. Well, listen to what he says in chapter number nine. He says, 77s have been determined to accomplish these wonderful things. Verse number 25 says, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and build Jerusalem unto the Messiah, the prince, shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. 7 plus 62 is 69. So he says there are 70 weeks that have been determined to accomplish all these wonderful things, and yet 69 weeks will pass before Messiah will come. And if you do the math, uh, then you can find from the time of Cyrus giving the decree that the Jerusalem uh, walls and temple could be rebuilt until the time of Jesus coming in his first advent, is approximately 483 years. Now, it depends on where you measure which exact decree uh, that we're measuring by, as well as uh, estimating exactly what year in which Christ was crucified. And, and these are, are, are close numbers. We don't know the exact. But if you begin with Cyrus's decree and you go forward 69 sevens or 483 years, then you arrive at the time of the triumphal entry and the crucifixion of Jesus. This is what Daniel says will happen. He says that Messiah would come. In verse number 26, he says, but uh, after these weeks, Messiah shall be cut off or killed, but not for himself. And we know that that happened, don't we? That Jesus came and was in fact cut off. He was killed, but not for himself. He came as the Messiah. And had he been received as the Messiah by the Jews, then, then our salvation would have never come about. But in the sovereign knowledge and plan of Almighty God, he was in fact cut off, crucified, so that we and anyone who would believe in him could in fact come to faith and be saved. So it says in verse number 26 that after 62 weeks, Messiah would be cut off. And then he goes on to say in verse number 26, and after Messiah is cut off, then the prince of the people that is to come, that this prince would uh, come and that uh, these people, speaking of the Romans, would destroy the city of Jerusalem and the temple of God. And in fact, we know this happened. Jesus was crucified and within one generation, by the year 70 AD, the temple of God was no more. It was destroyed. 
And within a few years after that, by 135 AD, the city of Jerusalem was totally destroyed, the streets broken up, the walls torn down, and the city was leveled by the Romans. This is what the angel said would happen, that they would destroy the city and the sanctuary. But then Daniel goes on to be told by this angel that then there would be another one that would rise, another leader that would come to power, and that this leader would confirm a covenant with Israel. Remember, they were slaughtered by the Romans. Now he says in verse number 27, but the prince that is to come will confirm a peace covenant with them for one week. There's the final week. Remember verse 24, 70 weeks have been determined. 69 of those weeks were accomplished up to Christ's death and resurrection. And one week, one seven or one period of seven years remains yet to be fulfilled. And that final week in the book of Daniel is in fact the time of Jacob's trouble, the seven year period of tribulation. You see, what Daniel couldn't see and what the angel didn't reveal to him is that between the 69th week and the 70th week, which is yet future, there was a period of time, which to date has lasted almost 2,000 years. We're living in that gap between Daniel's 69th week and Daniel's 70th week. The 70th week will in fact be this period of tribulation. All of that to say, how do we know the tribulation lasts seven years? Because Daniel's time is given in periods of seven years. Now, just to quickly say, we also know that it's a period of seven years because repeatedly uh, the Bible divides this final span of seven years. It divides it in half, and every time it divides it into half, we are told that half of that period of time is a period of 42 months or 1,200 and 60 days. In fact, in a few places, the Bible says that this period is divided into a time, times, and a half a time. A time being one year, times being two years, one plus two is three, a half a time being a half a year, three and a half. So whether the Bible's speaking about 42 months or 1260 days, or a time, times, and a half a time, all of those equal three and a half years. So here's the point. There is a period of tribulation coming upon the world. It is Daniel's 70th week. It will last for seven years, and it will come to a conclusion right in this valley where I'm standing when Jesus returns. Now, during this time of tribulation, the Bible tells us that there will be a key figure that will rise to power. There will be a political leader who will come to power and ultimately rise to world dominance. And the Bible calls him by a number of different names. 2 Thessalonians refers to him as the man of sin or the son of perdition or the son of destruction. In that passage, Paul calls him the lawless one or the wicked one. Revelation 13 that we'll read in just a moment refers to this one that, uh, uh, that Paul calls the lawless one or the man of sin. In Revelation 13, he's called the beast. Now, we mostly know him as the Antichrist. We call him the Antichrist based on the words of John in 1 John when he said, you know that the Antichrist is coming. 
And the name Antichrist means one who opposes Christ. Or it can also mean one who takes the place of. The word can mean to stand against or to insert yourself instead of, to be a counterfeit Christ. And we know, in fact, that the Antichrist of the tribulation period will be both the opposer of Christ and the one who would seek to substitute himself for Christ. And so in your notebook today, I want you to write this down, this prophetic point. I hope you have your notebook with you. Jot down this prophetic point. It is that we know that a charismatic leader, a world leader, will rise to prominence. A charismatic world leader will rise to prominence, first as a man of peace, but then becoming a brutal global dictator. And so what does the Bible tell us about this Antichrist who is to come? Well, let's read it. Revelation chapter number six, only a couple of verses, and then we'll go over to chapter 13 in a moment. Listen to Revelation six, verse number one. The Bible says, and I saw when the lamb opened one of the seals and I heard as it were the noise of thunder one of the four living creatures saying, come and see. And I saw and behold a white horse and he that sat on him had a bow and a crown was given to him and he went forth conquering and to conquer. Now it's an interesting thing that begins to happen in chapter six because the seals upon this all important book that Daniel sees in chapter five the seals on that book or that scroll begin to be broken. We won't take time today uh, to go back and read through chapter 5, but essentially in, that, in the end of that chapter, John talks about this all-important scroll that he sees in the hand of God, and they search all of heaven and all of earth, all of creation, to find someone worthy to open that book. And none is found worthy except Jesus, the Lamb of God who had been slain. And Jesus takes the book out of the hand of God, begins to open it, and he opens it by breaking the seven seals that are sealing it shut. And with the breaking of each of those seven seals, then another of the judgments of the tribulation begin to unfold. Well, with the breaking of the first seal in chapter 6 and verses 1 and 2, you have the appearance of a rider upon a white horse. And this rider comes uh, into the world and he is carrying a bow, but you'll notice there are no arrows in his quiver. He has no ammunition. It is as if he has laid down his ammunition and he comes as an agent of peace. Here's the point, that when we think about the Antichrist, we first of all have to understand that he will appear as a champion of peace. He will appear as a champion of peace. You know, the peace that the world seeks, she has been clamoring after throughout the centuries. This world needs peace, and yet it seems to be elusive every time we think we've finally secured it. Um, the United Nations charter reads this way. The purpose of the United Nations is to maintain international peace and security. Think about that. The purpose of the United Nations is to maintain international peace and security. And to that end, to take effective and collective measures for the prevention and removal 
of all threats to peace. United Nations, the gathering of nearly every nation on the earth in New York City at the UN headquarters, the work of the Security Council, the work of every committee in the United Nations, the work of that entire organization populated by heads of state and representatives from around the world is simply this. We must do whatever must be done. We must take whatever steps are required to eliminate all threats to international peace and to secure that peace, whatever is required. You see, conflict and war This is the natural condition, the natural state of nations with conflicting interests. And throughout history, nations have been at war. And while we have tried to secure peace, we've never known it uh, for very long at a time. We've never known it in a very broad cross-section of humanity at a time. Peace seems elusive. And yet the Bible says that one day peace is coming to the earth. Now, it will come when the Prince of Peace comes, when Jesus comes. But before that, there will be a peace. That will be a temporary peace, and it will be a false peace. But there is a peace coming through the leadership of the Antichrist that the United Nations simply cannot achieve. See, Scripture says that this world crying out in the last days for any person or any alliance of nations that could secure the peace, that that person would be embraced. And in fact, we know that he will be. Revelation chapter 6 and verse number 2 says, He will ride forth on a white horse, one of the good guys coming with no arrows in his quiver, bringing peace. And in fact, Daniel chapter 9, where we were reading a moment ago, says that this rider upon a white horse, this man of peace, this champion of peace, will in fact do what no one has been able to do throughout the course of history, yet what many have tried to do. And that is to bring peace, not just to the world, but to bring peace to the Middle East, to bring peace to the Jewish people and to the state of Israel here in the Middle East. In fact, Daniel chapter 9, verse number 27 says that this period of seven years, this final week in Daniel's prophecy will begin as a time of peace. Do you remember it? Daniel 9, 27, and he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week or for seven years. Now, the fact of the matter is this this leader, this beast, this man of sin this Antichrist, he could be alive somewhere in the world today. I don't know that he is, but it's entirely possible that somewhere today he is rising through the ranks of a political system, some European nation where he's rising in influence and the stage is being set for his appearance as this world leader. And what specific events might prompt his coming forth onto the world scene? Rather than simply being a successful national leader or even a successful multinational leader, what would be the events that would cause him to step forward and the world, the entire world, receive him as the author of peace? Well, I I don't know the answer to that for sure. It could be a number of things. It could be the rapture of the church, couldn't it? Couldn't it be that on that day when hundreds of millions, even 
in excess of a billion people around this planet suddenly disappear in an instant, caught up in the clouds to be with the Lord, and chaos would break out on this, on this planet? It might be that that sort of event would trigger this man to step forward and bring solutions. It could also be a battle, a, a, a war like the world has never seen that Ezekiel describes in Ezekiel 38 and 39. We call it the battle of Gog and Magog. And the players in this battle are even forming alliances today. Now, I want you to hear what I'm saying. I, I'm not telling you that this Antichrist is on the scene today. I don't know that, but I am telling you that one of the events, the battle of Ezekiel 38 and 39, that could be, might be, the uh, predicate to his coming forward, that the, the nations mentioned in Ezekiel's battle are in fact forming alliances even as we speak. And they could in fact launch a war that would be the predicate of his coming forward. So my point is that the world is ready. The world is ripe for a leader who will bring peace. And while the peace that he brings will bring him worldwide acclaim and nations and people groups all over the planet will follow him, the peace that he brings will be very, very temporary. In fact, in Revelation 6 and verse number 2, he comes forth conquering in peace. But in verse number 3, another writer comes forth. And by the time you get to verse number 4, war is breaking out all over the planet. And so the peace that he brings is very, very temporary. In fact, 1 Thessalonians tells us in chapter number 5, when they shall say peace and safety, when the world thinks, finally, someone has brought us to a place of peace across the globe, when they shall say peace and safety, 1 Thessalonians 5.3 says, then sudden destruction is coming upon them. In fact, I want you to understand that while he will come forward, the beast, the Antichrist, will come forward as a man of peace. That peace, as it evaporates, will find his changing his colors. And in fact, the entire world will be deceived into worshiping this global dictator. Deception will be the rule of the day. Let me read this to you. Revelation chapter 13. You've been holding your finger there all of this time or you've had a Bible marker there. Listen to Revelation 13 verses 1 through 8. John says, And I stood upon the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. And the beast which I saw was like unto a leopard, and his feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth as the uh, mouth of a lion. And the dragon, Satan, gave him his power and his seat and his great authority. Now John describes the rising of this final world empire with the Antichrist as its head. Verse number three, And I saw one of his heads, as it were, wounded to death, and his deadly wound was healed. And all the world wondered after the beast. And they worshiped the dragon which gave power unto the beast. And they worshiped the beast saying, Who is like unto the beast? Who is able to make war with him? And there was given unto him a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. And power was given unto him to continue for 42 months. There's that designation I spoke of earlier. 42 months or three and a half years. 
And he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle and them that dwell in heaven. And it was given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And power was given unto him over all the kindreds and tongues and nations. Listen to verse 8. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. What Revelation chapter 13 tells us is that this man of peace will in fact morph halfway through the seven-year period. He will morph from a benevolent dictator, a benevolent ruler, a man of peace into a beast. Some 10 times in this passage that we've read, he is called the beast. And this worship, this global worship that will follow him will be the product of deception. In your handbook, I want you to jot down this focus factor, which is simply to say that the true agenda of the Antichrist will be hidden at first. When he's a man of peace, it will appear that his agenda is peace, but there's a hidden agenda. And that true agenda will be hidden at first, then deception will lead to his universal worship. And I do mean that, his universal worship. Isn't this what verse 8 says, Revelation 13 and verse 8? And how many? Not some, not most. All that dwell upon the earth shall worship him, except those whose names have been written in the book of life. Now, by the way, don't misunderstand. That doesn't mean that the rapture doesn't happen before the Antichrist comes. The church has already been raptured out. But there will be many people who will come to faith in Jesus during the tribulation period. And their names will be written in the book of life. And they, of course, will not worship this beast. They'll pay for that refusal to worship him with their lives. But all who are not followers of Jesus in that day will worship the beast. Now, how could it be? How could it be possible that one person, one man, would be worshipped by the entire world? Well, the Bible tells us that there will be another uh, person, another beast, that will stand alongside the Antichrist. You read about him in Revelation chapter number 13, verse 11, where that verse says, John says, I beheld another beast coming up out of the earth. And without reading the rest of the chapter, you can read it later. This is a description of the false prophet. And the false prophet will come and he will have satanically empowered the ability to perform miracles, and he will deceive the nations into believing that the Antichrist is in fact the Messiah, that he is in fact God to be worshipped. He'll convince them with miracles that he'll perform. This is what chapter 13 verses 13 and 14 says. The false prophet will do great wonders so that he will make fire to come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. He will deceive them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles which he has the power to do in the sight of the beast. And he will say to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an image to the beast and that they should bow down and worship that image and that they should worship the beast himself. So he'll deceive them with miracles and they will worship the Antichrist. And not only that, but interestingly, the scripture indicates that this leader, this beast, this Antichrist, the world leader will in fact be assassinated. I said it right that he will be assassinated, and yet that he will be raised from the dead. Look with me, Revelation chapter 13. Look at verse number 3. 
Revelation 13, verse number three. I saw one of his heads. It says the leader of this empire, this final empire. I saw one of his heads as it were wounded to death and his deadly wound was healed. And because his wound was healed, this deadly wound was healed, all the world wondered after him, verse 3 says. Look at verse 13, same chapter, verse 13. The false prophet does great wonders so that he makes fire come down from heaven in the sight of them. Verse 14, he deceives those uh, people in the world by the, the miracles that he does, including the fact, verse 14 says, that he was able to um, heal the one that had a wound by a sword or a weapon, and yet he did live. And then uh, the Bible says this in chapter 17 of Revelation and verse number eight as well. Let me read that verse to you. The beast that you saw that was and is not and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit and go into perdition, speaking of the Antichrist, and they that dwell upon the earth shall wonder, whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, when they behold the beast that was and is not and yet is. I mean, think about this that the Antichrist is such a, a counterfeit of Jesus that in the same way that Jesus said in Revelation chapter 1, I am he that was and was not, and I am, I lived, I died, now I'm living again. Revelation 13, Revelation 17, Daniel chapter 9 all tell us that the Antichrist will be wounded so severely that he will in fact die and yet be raised. Now, some question, how could that be possible? Only God has the power of life. Well, perhaps God will allow this, give Satan the power to affect this resurrection of the beast, or perhaps uh, it will be pulled off by some uh, magic trick or some sort of uh, deception. But in either case, the world will be convinced that their leader, their man of peace has died, and yet God has raised him, and now he is worthy of worship. This is exactly what the Bible says will happen. Well, the Antichrist will come and he will have one agenda. While it will seem his agenda is peace, that's, that's a false peace. His one agenda is in fact to diminish the glory of God and to get glory himself. In fact, chapter 13 verse 5 says that he will in the midpoint of the tribulation begin to blaspheme the name of God. Revelation chapter 13, verse number five, there was given unto him a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies and power was given unto him to continue 40 and two months. And he opened his mouth, verse six says, in blasphemy against God. And in fact, 2 Thessalonians chapter two tells us that he will even enter into the temple in Jerusalem, which will have been rebuilt at that time. And he will defile that temple by setting himself up as God and demanding that he be worshiped. Now, all of these events will occur during the period of tribulation after the church has been raptured out. The world will be deceived. And yet, church, let me challenge you that we should beware of deception even today. The power of deception, the spirit of Antichrist, John says in 1 John chapter 2, is on the land, even in our day. And the spirit of deception works even in God's church today and in individual Christian lives. And so we must beware of deception in our lives, in our own thinking, in our families, in our church. We must beware of the enemy's ability to deceive us into believing what is not true. In fact, may I encourage you to write down what your next step is? And I hope you'll do more than write it down. I hope you'll actually take this next step. It is to say that since knowing what is true 
is our greatest defense against deception. I should become a diligent student of God's Word. Since knowing what is in fact true will help me stand against deception, then I must know what is true by becoming a diligent student of God's Word. If I want to resist the spirit of deception that's even in the world today, then I need to be a student of God's Word. And in these days that are coming, these days of tribulation, the Bible says that the beast is going to rule on this planet for seven years. First three and a half years of peace, and then in those final three and a half years, he will morph into this beast who will be a maniacal tyrant who will enforce and through the trickery and the deception of the false prophet will demand to be worshiped. And all the world will in fact bow down and will give him that worship. Now I want to give you a challenge before I, before I dismiss you today. And I'm, I'm grateful for your attention. But the Bible says that this tribulation period will come to a conclusion in an event known as the Battle of Armageddon. And that battle we'll study in just a couple of weeks. But it will take place where I'm standing today in this valley of Armageddon that you see behind me. This is where Christ will come and where the Bible says that the beast will be destroyed and cast into hell. That day is coming for him, but I hope it never comes for any of you. I want you to know Jesus as your Savior. And I'm going to lead you in a simple prayer today so that you can give your life to Jesus Christ. And many of you are sitting here today with a friend because a friend invited you, a friend brought you to hear the good news of the gospel. And they're sitting beside you even now praying for you, praying that you'll believe the gospel and that you'll trust in Jesus as your Savior. And I'm going to give you a chance to do that, but whether you do that today or not, I hope that you will talk to your friend about it. They're ready to have that conversation with you and they are equipped to help you answer the questions that you might be asking or to point you to the people who can answer those questions. But the most important question you'll ever ask and answer is, am I a follower of Jesus? Have my sins been forgiven? Is heaven my home? And if not, I want to invite you to receive Christ right where you're sitting today with your heads bowed and your eyes closed on both campuses today. Would you, if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, would you just call out to Him in this very simple prayer? It's a prayer of confession. God, I'm a sinner. You know, to be saved, we have to understand that we're lost. And so we must confess that we are sinners. Confess that to him. God, I'm a sinner. And then we must admit that we cannot save ourselves. Try as we might, become as good as we can, wash with as much moral soap as we can muster up. It'll never be enough to cleanse our sins. Only Jesus can save us. Only Jesus lived the perfect life that we want to live but we're unable to do. You must admit that you can't save yourself. So say to him, Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. And I know... I confess I cannot save myself. And then tell him that you believe in him. You know, the Bible says we're saved by faith. And so we believe, we trust, we put all of our hope in what Christ did for us. He died on the cross and rose from the dead to be our Savior. And if you'll trust in that alone, then Christ will come into your life and he will save you and forgive you of all your sins. So the prayer is this, Father, I confess that I'm a sinner. I know I can't save myself. I believe, Jesus, that you are the Savior. You died and rose for me. And today I trust you. I'm repenting. I turn from my old life and I'm trusting in Jesus. Today I choose to follow Christ. And I pray that you'd forgive me of my sins, come into my life and take me to heaven when I die. 
And I pray this by faith in Jesus' name.